Welcome to the 49th Mill Podcast. My name is Mitchell Howe and I am your host. I'm going to take you along a journey throughout the state of Alaska where we will meet the men and women that make the food that you love. Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of the 49th Mill. Today we are speaking with Julia O'Malley. This is going to be a little bit of a different interview, but I will let her introduce herself and kind of give you a rundown of who she is and what she does. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a food writer, uh, and I have written a book called The Whale and the Cupcake, which just came out around a year ago, although it seems like it never came out because there's a pandemic. <laughs> but um, And it's about Alaska's food culture, so it's about kind of the different things that shape how we look at food here. Um, and I, uh, I'm a contributor to the New York Times food section some and uh so i didn't i've of course i've done some work selling cheese i sold cheese as well and uh and also worked some in kitchens but um i am a home cook and i write recipes for edible alaska and the anchorage daily news um, so now so. what what is edible alaska i mean i know i know what it oh, is man. For, you're, so, you're, some of our listeners might not know what it is Brad. they should all subscribe it's a local it's a local food magazine that comes out four times a year it's all about alaska food there's all kinds of interviews and beautiful photography and cool recipes and supported by many food businesses across the state and you can usually find it at food businesses i think out in palmer i bet it's at the bookstore but it's a uh, it, edible is a chain and um, it's a you can become an edible franchise. There's pretty much one in every state. And I think if you travel around or you're in the food world much, you'll encounter them. But edibles like rad and you just Google edible Alaska and you should, everyone should subscribe. It's like totally worth it. Um, yeah. And for our listeners, if you click on our logo, wherever you're listening to this podcast, we will include a link to that. So everybody can subscribe to that. And now, being a food writer, how, how did that journey start for you? You know, um, I've been a reporter for oh, probably 20 years now. Oh, God, I'm getting old. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I worked on and off of the Anchorage Daily News since I was about 15 or 16, and um, now I'm 42, and and when I came back to work there a few years after college, I started out covering the census. Um, so really writing about ethnic and minority communities in the city, which had grown a lot and changed. And that uh, experience really led me into a lot of different kitchens and uh, grocery stores and home, home kitchens. And uh, I started to see food as this kind of ticket into lots and lots of stories. And also we live in a state where people have like po politics kind of across the spectrum and, but everyone, everybody wants to talk about food, you know? So, so I don't know, I guess at the same time, I've always had a large family. I've always been someone who's interested in cooking. And so I always cooked a lot. And just over time, those two things kind of just coalesced a bit. Um, and so I worked at the Anchorage Daily News until 2015. And um, and after I left there, like it, we had a second kid and I stayed home with my kid, but I started to freelance nationally. And 
many, many of those stories just ended up being about food in one way or another. Um, and so I don't know, it just kind of like, I just kind of went from there. So, and yeah, and then my first, you know, my way to write for the times, which had always been a goal for me was like, um, through the, the sort of food world. And I've since been able to write for other sections of that paper, but, um, yeah, food's just always been my ticket, man. Nice. I can, I mean, I can completely feel and relate to that. That is food. There's so much in this world that divides us and it seems like no matter where you go, food is the one thing that can unite everyone. True. No, nobody turns down a good plate of food. Yeah, everyone's got to eat. And it's it's more than that, too. It's the ritual of eating. Like, when somebody comes to your house, you know, you offer them a drink, right? Like, um, there's something about the way that we all sit down that I think is, like, a uniting force. Yeah, I was watching something a few years ago on Netflix where a chef would take people from different cultures that didn't get along like Israeli and Palestine and would bring them together over a plate of food to talk out their differences and it was really cool to see kind of that cultural bonding with it and I've noticed Alaska is just from the short time I've been here food is so central to the culture what do you think is a big part of that up here? It sounds like you're, you've dove in a lot deeper than I have. So where do you see the food culture being in Alaska? I think one of the strongest influencers on how we look at food is Alaskan Native subsistence culture. You know, food as a way to connect to other humans and the landscape food as a way to understand time, food as kind of a mechanism to pass down values from one generation to another. I mean, that comes from Alaska Native culture, but I think that that stuff, um, those values and that stuff, I think it, it sharing is another thing. I think that that fans out into the wider culture. So I'd say that's a big influencer. Another real big influencer is a isolation um, and sort of distance from the wider world. And that leads us into all kinds of behaviors around food, whether it's like hoarding it, you know, the, the ritual of pantry building, but over building your pantry, you know, um, sort of our relationship with Costco, like that kind of thing, but also to, (laughs) there's like a weird word I'm going to use, but fetishizing food. So like there are foods you can't get that either that you can only get outside that come from, they may not even be like particularly that good, but because you can't get them, they get this magic on them. So like, you know, when I was a kid, it would have been like Krispy Kreme donuts, you know, like you would, somebody would like bring them up from Seattle and then they'd like ride on the plane and then they'd like stay the night. And then like the next day people would still pay double just cause they were like Krispy Kreme donuts. So it's like, there's some sort of like relationship relationship to the outside world that, ex- that comes out in the way that we look at certain foods as special. And a lot of people also, I mean, less so today, maybe than during the pipeline, but many people come from somewhere else. So food is this way to like kind of connect to you know, culture that you left behind, which also has to do kind of with like how Alaska is an island. Um, And even for like native people living in the city, subsistence foods, you know, and the longing for subsistence foods 
is another sort of way in which food is about longing is about, um, you know, wanting to connect to something left behind. So I don't know. So those are some of the things that have come out, you know, as I have done research and interviews over time about how we relate to food. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense because I know when, like, if we go down the lower 48s, the first thing everybody says, can you bring us smoked salmon? Can you bring us Alaskan smoked salmon? And then we, we get the other list of people from here. Hey, while you're down there, can you pick this and that up? So the fetishizing food, I never thought about it that way, but it is, I, I completely see that. Well, and, you know, oh. It's ingrained in our culture to like infuse food with like greater meaning. I mean, like there is no, there is no better example than like the communion wafer and the wine, right? It's like Catholics believe that is actually blood and, you know, of Jesus that you're drinking. Um, But, but food, you know, from a writer's perspective, food is always like a carrier for something else, like a carrier molecule for something else. Like, you know, it's about flavor and recipe, but it's also about like history and identity and origin and uh, loss and connection and nostalgia, like all of those things. So anyway, sorry, I'm going off. I've had a cup of another cup of coffee. So <laughs> No, that's completely fine. I, Myself, that was one of the reasons I got going in this and doing the podcast is to share these stories and share my own personal and other people's thoughts on food because it really is the universal, like you said, molecule of transferring stuff. I mean, information, cultures, customs, everything is ingrained in food. So I love it. I completely get it. Hopefully our listeners do too. (laughs) So now, uh, tell us a little bit more about this book, The Well and the Cupcake, that you wrote. It's a collection of food writing I did over three or four years. I would say about half of it are stories that ended up in the Times, but then it's work I did for, like, I think Al Jazeera. I did. I started out freelancing for Al Jazeera. It doesn't even exist now, but for a while, they would just, like, you could pitch them stories, and they would buy you a plane ticket. Um but it it's just kind of the other thing that's in that book are these recipes that are sort of like illustrations of some piece of our food culture. Like I wrote for the times this story about like cake mix um, in rural Alaska and the role of cake mix cake in sort of people's cultural get togethers. Like, because the thing about cake mix cake is it always turns out no matter like, and you can sub in all kinds of different ingredients, but over time, like village cooks have like mixed, come up with these things that they make, like they'll do like a layer of orange jello with, you know, salmon berries in it, and then put that on top of a cake and then put a layer of Cool Whip and then they put, get it really cold and then they cut it into slices. And, um, but anyway, so Uh, then I also included, because I'm third generation Alaskan, um, and so I included a family recipe that my family always used for just like a particular, you know, bunt cake that's made with pudding mix, because that was another thing is like, there's just a lot of, another theme in our recipes, like another thing I've done is kind of a study of old recipe books, but is just like substitutions, Um, and so it's not unique to Alaska to use like cake mix, um, 
and put like pudding in there and whatever but the but that kind of a recipe is like really bulletproof and so if you don't have eggs or your eggs are bad and you decide to use mayonnaise or whatever um you know, the recipe still works. So anyway, I used like a family recipe of mine that called for butterscotch pudding, but I updated that recipe to use um, Dolce de Leche instead, which is still shelf stable, which is, you know, one of the hallmarks of Alaska cooking is the use of kind of like shelf stable ingredients. Um, So anyway, so when your grocery trip consists of a Boeing 747 and not a Hyundai car, it kind of makes a big difference. Yeah, that's and that's a big plane, right? Your grocery, you know, like um um, but yeah. So so there's recipes like that. There's like Sarah Palin's chili, you know, which is of course like not just about chili, but just like a sort of a way that a politician might want to uh, underscore their authenticity. You know, it's like moose chili recipe. Um, that for a while she was like making moose chili on like Fox News and whatever. Um, so there's like that. And, um, you know, I mean, so it has some recipes in between that kind of are meaningful. I wouldn't say that the food that they are making is like very highbrow, um, but, you know, they kind of mean something in our culture. And I mean, another thing that's like very, uh, like kind of Alaskan is the way that recipes might mix like a, a wild food with something that's like shelf stable or even kind of like gas station quality like you know um like I'm working on a recipe right now that's like an Alaska thing but it's like that uh salmon you make with like potato chips on the top um <laughs> like oh, that yes. would be like a totally Alaskan thing but you know like I had a friend who's a photographer and she was just describing like going out whaling right so you're getting this like ancient beautiful food and everyone's eating funyuns you know and they're eating whale from the last time they went whaling and they're like <laughs> slicing off like a big you know like a big frozen block while they're out looking for the whale you know and so it's like um but that that kind of mixing, like that same idea, like salmon berries and cake mix, like that kind of mixing is also like really in part of how we eat and how we see food. Like it's certainly, we aren't snobs like in any way. And like, it's actually been my like secret mission to kind of encourage chefs and kitchens to like incorporate more of that stuff to kind of like throw back a little bit to you know, whatever, like the kind of food that people would eat at work camps or uh, that sort of shelf stable, like old school cooking that got done, you know, in more rural places. Cause I actually think there's a lot of fun to be had there. Um, I did a dinner with Laura Cole at the museum where she like riffed a whole bunch on like camp food. Um, and then I did another dinner where um, with Bo Schooler who has a place in Juneau um, where he kind of riffed on like, you know, like the recipes in my book, but he like did them his own way. So like another recipe that's like real classic and of this place is like halibut Olympia, um, which is also known as halibut Alieska and also known as halibut Cataganti, depending on where you are. But he like did that, but did like a raw version that was like kind of salmon-y. I mean, like kind of sushi-esque um, with like a also involving mayonnaise and like um, also involving crushed Ritz cracker. Like that guy's crazy and awesome. I love that guy. Um, <laughs> but uh but anyway, so, so I don't even know. I was just going on, but yeah. So going back to the 
you're talking about like the whaling in the native culture and it playing into restaurants. I always hear like, oh, Alaska is so far behind the trends and stuff like that. But to me, it seems like we're actually getting ahead of a lot of the trends on going back to that farm to table, dock to farm settings. I hate it when I go to a restaurant and I feel like I could be dining in Seattle. It like, it just bums me out where a menu like erases the culture of the place. Um, And I think what I see more and more now are chefs really trying to embrace and incorporate the food culture of the place. I mean, one of the things that drives me nuts about Anchorage is like when you go to a restaurant and we live in a town with like a super interesting ethnic grocery on every corner. You can get Jamaican groceries, you can get goat meat, you can get like any number of fresh Asian greens, like the food culture of our city is like super diverse and interesting, but that is like not, it just like stops at the restaurant door and the restaurant is like trying to pretend like we live not in that food culture, even though people who eat here might have Indian one night, Ethiopian the next, they might have Ethiopian leftovers with like some like fried chicken, you know I mean? It's like, so the way we eat here is like super interesting and diverse too, because we have people from everywhere in Anchorage. Um, So I think that like it's not even about being with the times it's about like embracing our own culture and making it up as we go like really reflecting our place and making food that resonates with people here like you know um because it's like i think what we when we say we're behind the times is because we're trying to keep up with a culture that isn't even ours while we ignore the culture all around us um so what i'm seeing more and more though is restaurants sort of like opening those doors and like welcoming in, you know, like there was a chef who was over at Rustic Goat. He's not there anymore, but he used to, he was like, you know, I'm going to fly over to my cabin and get like a bunch of watermelon berry shoots and like incorporate those into the salad. Cause that's like of the place, right? Like, yeah. Um, and, and that's really where we like should be as like Chef Markham. Um, but that that's where we really should be um, instead of being like, well, what are they eating in Seattle? And like, how can we make it more like that? It's like the reason there's like beautiful food in Seattle and Portland is because those chefs are like, oh, what do we have here? And how do we like celebrate it? Um, rather than like, how do we stay with the trends by like copying it? Although, I mean, I will say that like restaurant culture there's also this thing that's very Alaskan of like wanting to feel sophisticated. And that means being of another place. Um, you know, it's like, I used to, I joke that there are like seven recipes for white cake. There's like a hundred year old, uh, Presbyterian women's cookbook from Fairbanks. And they're like a hundred, you know, like all they want to do, they can't get flour, but like all they want to do is like get flour and make a white cake. Whereas (laughs) they don't have a recipe for what to do with moose. And you know, they had a lot of moose, right? So it's like, (laughs) they just don't want to seem unsophisticated. But the thing is, is like, yeah, anyway, so I, I want things to be more of here because it's not like we don't have a cult a food culture here 
you know, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And it was, I, I completely relate to that because, I mean, I, I've worked with award, award-winning chefs, award-nominated award ones that chase those trends. And it's fun. It's good food. But you don't get the connection like you do with the little mom-and-pop restaurants up here that have a caribou chili or caribou sausage that's been used for literally hundreds of years. Right. And it's, I, I, I love seeing the big shift towards the local, locally grown produce and the local fish here, but I, I completely agree that we, in general, we need to embrace what's around us and not what, what TV is telling us is the next popular thing. Exactly. And it was funny because we had, uh, Food Network was up here filming the great food truck race. And all, all the trucks were amazing. I, I won't disclose which ones were my favorite, but it was just, there was nothing original about a lot of them. They were just catchy, flashy dishes that, meh, I mean, that might fly in Seattle, but you ain't going to produce that every day up here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just a... Uh it's hard for us to not treat ourselves like we're on the JV team, you know? Um, but the fact is, is that our chefs are just as good as chefs anywhere else, you know? And they, the thing that's cool about Alaska is that you, you know, you could be anybody here and there's like no reason that they can't define things rather than copy them you know and that actually that's what I like about Bo is he's always doing like crazy experiments and just trying crazy stuff and like um and he he's pretty well regarded you should have him on he's fun to talk to um, I've got him written down <laughs> as soon as you said yeah, the name. um but uh but anyway um it's just that like uh I we're not JV like you make a choice to live here it's not because you can't live somewhere else you know so like you get to say what's cool, you know? Um, and I do find the more that people cook the way that people eat and shop and in, in the more they cook along the lines of how we eat and shop and live and interact with a wild place, that those recipes and those dishes, they don't fail. They succeed. Um, I mean, cooking is just like writing. It's like, you got to know your audience, you know? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so much. <laughs> and, yeah. So anyway, I don't know. So like the better you know the place and the eaters, the better you're going to do, I think. But, you know, I'm not in the business. I'm just in the business of eating. So it's not a bad business to be in, except for right now. None of it's really flying off with all this COVID nonsense. But um, so what are some of your favorite places? Like if, if you're hitting the town, what is some of the first places that you're gonna go to um well let's see I'm a really big fan of um my restaurant in my neighborhood that I'm a big fan of is Crush I really like that place um and if I could go to a restaurant I'm not going to restaurants but if I could I would go there and I love those guys um and they they're just always inventing things they really love food um I am a huge fan of Fanatic um, and its partner bakery. 
Benji's, which is completely outrageous. Um, but Fanatic is a makes a bowl of pho that I swear to God is like gonna cure you of whatever is wrong. <laughs> Maybe not coronavirus, but otherwise. Um, and their bakery is insane. I think Fire Island Bakery does a really marvelous job. I think those guys are really great. You know, I don't know. I have so many places that <clears throat> I have a soft spot for. Uh, I really, you know, I live next to Lucky Wishbone. I've grown up eating there. I think that that place has just like a feel to it that's really precious. You know, Kinley's does some really nice dishes. Those guys work really hard. Everybody works really hard. I'm like absolutely in awe of Lale, who owns, you know, is involved with managing South and Snow City and just she is able to create and manage these restaurants that feel so contemporary and wonderful to be in. Um, she's just like a food professional that I think is fantastic. Um, I really like eating at Lavelle's and Fairbanks. Um, I ate at the cookery in uh, Seward over the summer and it was wonderful. Um, so I don't know. I just, I am inspired by places big and small. Oh man, I had that taqueria in Seward. Dude, I ate yes. those tacos. Oh, and, yes. Like life changing. You know, I like eating the pod. There's this pod CU, this dish over at, um, like, it's just like pho Vietnam in Midtown. And it's like homemade noodles and all these vegetables. And it is like just to die for. It's like killer. I love that place. And there is like uh, the Felina here has this noodle dish with quail eggs in it. That's like ridiculous Ooh. and super delicious. I've been fighting to eat at the, the like uh, Ethiopian restaurant here. Like every time I try to eat there, I can't, but like I'm trying to eat there. <laughs> Um, I'm like a crazy, I'm crazy about our coffee. I think we have beautiful coffee in Anchorage. I think um, we also have like really beautiful beer. So I just think we have a lot to offer. Oh, also like, you know, who, who is like an amazing, doing amazing in the pandemic, just in terms of their systems, like really impressive is Beartooth and Moose's Tooth. They've really been able to be resilient in a way that I think is like really amazing they're really thoughtful and i think their takeout game is amazing and they have great food um i don't know i like bring my kids to la cabana all the time also in my neighborhood and that's just like an old neighborhood place the oldest mexican restaurant in the city i think um and they they have this crew of regulars that just like make that place have a feel that i find totally lovely um i don't know which There's is a really i mean it, it's a underrated and underappreciated quality of restaurants is that ambionic feel oh it's i just think it's why alaskans eat out you know i mean eating especially in the winter is like a, a, a way to change it's like going to the movies which we can't none of neither of which we can do now but like you go someplace because of how it feels. And that's, I mean, that's what I mean about like Spinard Roadhouse or uh, South or Snow City. Those places just transport you. They really have this amazing feel. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's just, but that's always part of it, you know? I mean, the food can't suck, but the feel has to be right. Yes, I. Um, that was one of my problems when I worked for some of the big name restaurants is, some of the chefs do really good on the feel and others it just feels upscale cafeteria like very yeah. kind of robotic go in sit eat leave 
And that would turn me off from a restaurant, no matter how good the food is. Yeah, I, I, there are some places that are like super touristy in Anchorage that I don't, you know, the food's probably okay, but the feel between being crowded and just, you know, not feeling right. I don't like to go to them because of how they feel. Uh, yeah. Um, when I first moved to Alaska, I, we moved to Sitka and there was, there was some places that were definitely geared towards that cruise ship touristy feel. And it was just, no. Yeah. It just, it's too much. Like, yeah. And then now with Corona, I mean, I don't know how long it's going to take me to want to go in a place that's crowded and take my mask off, but a while I'll tell you that it's like I'm like the last person to get the vaccine on that list of people who get vaccine (laughs) I'm like a healthy 42 year old woman with no underlying health condition so um but yeah I think the the virus is going to change the way restaurants work and feel and in the way we eat I I think that that and also we're going to lose a lot um and that's just sucks um and I think it's because of I don't think it's because politicians are shutting them down. Like you can get mad about that, but I think it's because the virus is out of control. Um, it's, it's, and there isn't any relief. Um, the thing is, is like who's failing here are the people tr- who should be trying to stop the virus and the people who should be trying to get the money for the restaurant workers and the restaurants themselves. Um, and that is just, a, it's a crime. Um, it, because it really restaurants- is. Restaurants are the souls of our community and restaurant work is, you know, a job that supports all kinds of people in all kinds of walks of life. And, um, and the fact that there is no relief right now when like our rest, we have, I think a record number of cases today and 13 deaths, like, and they're like fewer than a hundred hospital beds open. Like, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, there's no choice. Like at some point they have to close it down so that we slow the spread and there's no, there should be relief for restaurants and there should be relief for restaurant workers. And the fact that there isn't, it's like, I don't understand. Um, I don't understand it. Uh, it's awful. Anyway, sorry. No, no, I completely, I I'm 100% in agreement with you on that. I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. These are our neighbors, our small businesses, our families that at the end of the day are the ones that are truly suffering because I know like my family when we lived in Sitka if we were not in the restaurant business we would not have been able to afford to live there period right it was everybody wants to knock waiters and chefs and everything and coming from 10 years in the kitchen uh, there's not a lot of people that can hang on that line day to day as a chef day in day out it's hard work yep because, yeah, I remember my first job was 80, 80 hours a week plus. And that, that wasn't even, con- that was barely considered full time at that place. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, and it's super hard work, but we, that industry is really important to everybody. Um, and there should be, hopefully, it looks like they're getting closer to passing some kind of relief package. But we don't even have unemployment for people right now. Um, we don't have relief if people are going to lose their house because they can't pay their rent. Like, I mean, it's, we have to support people like, and we have to slow down the virus, you know, cause like this can't just go on the way it's going. It's like, a, it's a mess right now. Anyway, <laughs> I am hopeful that 
we'll get things kind of situated and start to roll out the vaccine and that there will be relief for people going, you know, into the new year. Um, but, you know, I just hope that our restaurants that make our community what they are, I hope that they can hold on. So anyway, I know I'm going over my time here and I should probably oh. also get back to work. Um, <laughs> Uh, one quick thing, if you want to let our listeners know where they can find you on social media and a link for where they can find your book. Um, they can f- just Google me. I'm at, uh, Julia O'Malley. Wait, I think I'm at Julia O'Malley.media is my web address, but, um, you know, you can find me on Instagram at Joe Malley 17. Um, and I'm on Twitter and I have a Facebook page, um, a public Facebook page as well. Um, so you can find me all those places. My favorite spot right now is Instagram. That's what I update most. Um, and I'll put, I put all my recipes on there. Um, so that's the easiest place to find me. Um, but anyway, well, thanks for having me on the show. Yes. Thank you for coming on. And we look forward to, following you and kind of uh, keep an eye out on different recipes and articles you do. Thank you for listening to my daddy, Hugh Ladle. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.